Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you for being here. We are studying the minor prophets, um, and hopefully we're seeing that, uh, as we've been saying, that they, there are many major truths in the minor prophets. They're only minor because they're relatively short books, which has been really nice uh, for me because I've gotten, to, I've gotten to read to you entire books at times. Some, some of the minor prophets are a little too long for us to get through an entire book in a Wednesday night, but most of them are short enough that in these 45 minutes or so, we can read through the entire, the entire book and get this big picture view of what's being communicated by, by these prophets. And I hope that we see that there are circumstances that are going on regardless of the book of the Bible, right? I mean, there are circumstances in which that particular book was written, things that the author was going through, things that the audience was going through, things that were going on currently in their world or things that were about to occur or things that had just occurred. So they had these present circumstances. But with all all of the books of the Bible, there was an implication and is an implication that it's going to continue to be relevant for future generations, right? And that's one thing I like to think about as I read through the books is I think, why? Why not only did did God want this prophet to speak this word to his generation, but why did God want this preserved for the next generation and the next generation and the next generation? For thousands of years, we've had these books because God's people and God himself believes these truths to continue to be relevant long after the immediate circumstances are long past, right? And so sometimes we get, we, we kind of maybe get hung up on the historical context. It's good to think about the historical context, don't get me wrong. But there was an implication always that this will continue to be relevant. Otherwise, I mean, God could have just sent a prophet who could have just spoken a word and he could have just preached a few sermons and said what needed to be said. Nobody wrote it down because it wasn't going to be, it wasn't going to apply to anybody other than that immediate audience. But that's not the case with these messages. They were preserved for that generation, but also for the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. And long after the Messiah has come and we've entered into this covenant with God through Jesus, the Messiah, now these words continue to be relevant. And Paul would, would encourage his readers to study the scriptures. And when he talked about the scriptures, he, he didn't necessarily mean his letters. He meant, not that they're not scripture, because they are, but he meant the, the law and the prophets and the writings. And he says that it's these scriptures that will equip you as followers of Jesus the Messiah. You can be fully equipped for every good work by studying and reading and thinking on these truths. Now, one of the big questions, or the big question in the book of Habakkuk is, God, why don't you do something? Everything is broken. Things are bad. And it doesn't seem like you're doing anything. Now, it's obvious. If we believe that the scriptures are inspired by God, right? And we believe that, right? I believe that, that these scriptures are inspired by the Spirit of God, that they, as Peter said, they wrote as the Spirit carried them along. And we believe that they've been collected and preserved by God. So God, 
God, it's pretty obvious, isn't it, that God doesn't have an ego problem, right? I mean, if people were always asking me, Wes, why are you always messing up? Why, why do you just, you just leave a mess everywhere you go and you're never doing your job and fixing things? Like, I'd want to keep that a little bit quiet, right? I wouldn't want everybody to know that's what people were saying. But sometimes people have asked God, why don't you do anything? Why don't you fix this? There's a problem and it seems like you're not doing anything. And rather than hiding those complaints or pretending like those complaints don't exist, God says, I want future generations to hear this conversation that Habakkuk has with him, with God. God, why is all of this broken? And why is all of this happening? And you just let it happen. And I, Habakkuk is complaining and he's not the only one. There are lots of people in the scriptures that complain that things are not the way they're supposed to be. It shouldn't be this way, right? In fact, that continues to be an incredibly relevant question, doesn't it? A a, a relevant complaint. In fact, probably one of the leading causes or defenses of atheism in our world today is, as they say, the problem of evil, right? If, If there's a good God who's supposed to be all-powerful and all-loving. He knows everything, can see everything, can do everything. He is everywhere, and he is all-loving and benevolent, yet there continues to be evil in the world, then either God isn't very good because he's not fixing it, or God isn't very powerful because he can't fix it, right? And that's what the atheists would would claim and, and say this problem and existence of evil proves that there is no God, or at least there's not a loving God. Now, it's interesting that that complaint keeps getting thrown up in in God's face, as it were, or in our face, when the Bible is actually chock full of this complaint and God responding to this complaint and saying, I hear you, I hear you, and I know what you're saying, and here's what I want you to know. So Habakkuk is frustrated with the way things are, and if you've ever felt that way, whether you've been, maybe you haven't ever been angry at God, maybe you've not said, God, you should fix this, and why don't you, but probably all of us have wondered, why? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to people I love? Why why didn't God prevent this from happening? Why doesn't God stop this from happening? We've been there. If we haven't been there, we might be there in the future. Um, And that's exactly the kind of thing Habakkuk is saying. So chapter 1 and verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? That's starting right out of the gate pretty strong, isn't it? Right out of the gate. Okay, here's, here's my complaint. How long do I cry, help, help, help? And you don't hear, right? You don't respond. You don't listen to me. Or I cry violence and you don't save. Why do you make me see iniquity, sin? And why do you idly look at wrong? Look, God, you... Do you see that guy? Do you see that woman? Do you see what these people are doing? They're they're not listening to you. And and obviously, at this point, he's talking about his own people, of of God's people, the Jewish people, the people of Judah, and saying, "Mm, they're sinning and doing wrong, and they're doing violence, and I need help, and I need saving, and, and people that are being oppressed, 
need saving. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you, again, that's strong language, idly look at wrong? As if you're not doing anything. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, right? The law is paralyzed. Nobody's doing what it says to do. We've talked about before how, you know, even things like the year of Jubilee, how there was supposed to be a year of Jubilee every seventh, seventh year, every seventh Sabbath year, every 49 years, there's supposed to be a Jubilee. Slaves get set free, debts get released, land goes back to its original owners, and guess how many times we have record of that being observed? Zero. And laws about things like, you know, if you're harvesting in your field, Leave some for the poor, leave some for the sojourner, leave some for the widow, leave some for the fatherless. If you're picking grapes in your vineyard, leave some on the vine. Don't take everything so that those that can come behind you can harvest those things. And guess what? Not doing it. And, and things, laws that prevented people from taking advantage of other people or hurting other people. He says the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. Again, justice is two-sided, isn't it? On the one hand, yes, it's punishment of evildoers. These evildoers are doing it and they're getting away with it. Like they're getting away with it. Not just like for a day or two days or three days, but for years and decades and generations. And it seems like the rich keep getting richer on the backs of the poor. And it seems like they keep taking advantage of people and it seems like they keep hurting people and it seems like Justice isn't being done. Yes, justice, like, stop them. But also, what about the oppressed? What about these people that are being murdered? What about these people that are being taken advantage of? What about these people that are having wrong done to them and their land stolen? They didn't do anything wrong. They were good and they wanted to obey you. And yet, they're being hurt. And I'm praying and I'm asking and I'm pointing it out. And I'm saying, do something, and nothing seems to change. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. The people who are in charge and the people who are supposed to stop this kind of thing from happening, they're not doing anything about it. And then, in Habakkuk's view, God's not doing anything about it. God's not stopping it from happening. So, the Lord responds, verse 5. And you're not going to like his answer. And neither did Habakkuk. Because he's, Habakkuk is complaining about his people, right? The people all around him, like God's people, the Jewish people. And, and saying, okay, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And here's what God says. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. That bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. So God is about to tell him, you're right, you're right. Your people are doing some bad things. My people are doing some bad things and I am gonna do something about it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something about it. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna raise up the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. I'm gonna raise up the Babylonians, those people who are horrible, bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Verse 7, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. 
Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. They worship their own strength, their own might, their own military strength. That's God's answer, right? God, I told you we got a problem in Judah, and your answer is you're going you're gonna to have these people who worship their own military strength, who are horrible and wicked. They're like monsters. Come and swallow us up. That's your answer? That's not what Habakkuk was looking for, was it? Like, God, I thought you might send like, a, like one of the judges, like a Samson or something, right? I mean, I thought you'd raise up a king that would kind of come in and clean stuff up, a sheriff who'd come into town and bring some law and order here. But you're going to raise up the Babylonians against us? Verse 12. Are you not from everlasting? This is Habakkuk's response, his reaction. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Wait a second. You're not that kind of God? You... You don't put up with evil and wickedness. You, don't, you can't even look at evil and, and wicked doers. Yet this is your plan. This is what you're going to do. You're going to allow this wicked nation to rise up. Look what he says. Remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. In other words, I mean, we're bad, God. Yeah, I met. We got some problems. Like, I originally came to you with all of our problems. We've got some problems here. But they're way worse than we are. Like, that wasn't what I was looking for. And can you imagine? I mean, kind of put yourself in his shoes. Can you imagine? You look around at your own nation, or you look around at your own community, and you think, man, we've got some problems and things are just getting so bad around here and people just don't treat each other well and man, why doesn't God do something and why doesn't God stop this and things are really bad and then God's answer is, well, I am going to do something and I'm going to cause a nation that's far worse than you to raise up and swallow you. That's how I'm going to deal with this current situation and Habakkuk is just appalled. How could you do that? You make Verse 14, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, this is the, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, right? I mean, he, it's like he, he is a fisherman, or he's casting a net and just taking in everybody captive. And he just brings them all in with a hook, with a net, Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. You see, the, like the net is like a metaphor for Babylon's military strength and power. And like God said a minute ago in verse 11, 
that he worships his own might. And again, Habakkuk says, yeah, it's like, it's like he's fishing with his nets and he brings them all in and then he worships his net afterwards. That Babylon is so strong and mighty and they're sweeping through the world and swallowing up nations and, and they're, so, they're so not afraid of you, God. They so don't fear you or love you or worship you. They sacrifice to their own military strength, to their own nets, and they live by them. Is he then to keep on, here's the question, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly, is that what's going to happen? This cycle? This cycle of bad happens and so they just come in and he's just, They're just going to sweep them into the net and then empty out their net and then sweep more into their net and then empty it out and sweep more in and just keep on forever. And again, as we talked about last week when we talked about Assyria, now we're talking about Babylon, two world empires. When they're that strong and that mighty and they come in hordes, I mean, I don't know that we can really appreciate how terrifying that would be. Why can't we appreciate that? Well, because we're on the inside of a huge nation, right? Can you imagine being a tiny, little nation like Judah and having this world empire growing right outside your door and God saying, yep, they're coming for your punishment? Is this never going to end? Are they just going to grow and just keep growing and keep devouring? Now, again, I just kind of want to hit pause and step outside of this and go back to what we said in the beginning, that yes, the historical context is about the fall of Assyria and then, and then the rise of Babylon and then how Babylon's going to come in and, and punish Judah, but, but it's, it's more than that because these, these empires and nations become archetypes, right? So that in future generations... When it's people like Antiochus Epiphanes and the Greeks, when it's the Syrians, when it's the Romans that are oppressing God's people, do you suppose that in all of those different eras and generations of oppression and pain and turmoil, that they could look back at this story and see the things that God and Habakkuk are talking about? Because don't you know they felt the same way, right? When Antiochus Epiphanes rose up and he outlawed He outlawed Judaism in Judah. He took over the temple. A pig was sacrificed in the temple. You couldn't circumcise your kids. You couldn't have a copy of the law. And don't you know, they were looking at God the same way, saying, why are you letting this happen? We're better than, even if you're punishing us, even if you're punishing us, God, and yes, we have sins for which we need to be punished, but they're worse than we are way worse than we are. And don't you know when the Romans rose up, they felt this way. Why do you let this happen? And so God says, this is what's going to happen. And Habakkuk says, no, surely that can't be the answer. Or surely this can't last forever, this cycle of destruction. So verse 1 of chapter 2. Chapter 2 starts with this. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So he says, okay, 
I'm, I'm telling you, God, I don't like this. I, don't, I didn't like the situation in the beginning. I told you about it. You responded, and I don't like your response. And so I'm going to sit here, and I'm going to wait. Like a watchman on a tower, I'm going to sit, and I'm going to wait, and I'm going to listen for your response. And of course, the Lord does respond. Verse 2, the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. That right there. Grab that, hold on to it, right? God says, listen, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Write it down. Hold on to it. Even if it seems slow in coming, it will come to pass. And church, this is so incredibly important because in every single generation, there are people who feel like, why is this happening? Surely a good and loving God wouldn't put up with this. Why don't you do something? And God is about to say, I am doing things and I will do things and I will make everything right. Write it down. I will make everything right. And on those days where you feel like, where is it? It's sure been a long time. Hold on to it. It's coming. I'm coming. Justice is coming. All of the wrongs will be righted. Verse 4, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. That is the theme of the book, isn't it? The righteous shall live by his faith. These nations get puffed up and they feel really strong and they will be brought down. Every single one of them, every single one of them who oppress and steal and kill and destroy Every single one of them will be brought down, but the righteous shall live if, if they have what? Faith. And this is why Paul would draw on these words over and over again when he's writing to the church at Rome, when he's writing to the churches in Galatia, he would draw on this idea and say the righteous will live by their faith. When you put your trust in God, when you have faith in him, When you, again, going back to our meek class, the meek shall inherit the earth, when you endure the present in light of the future because you trust God, those are the righteous ones. Those are the righteous ones. Those who wait upon the Lord, who say, I know it's been a long time and I'm frustrated and it shouldn't be this way. And it hurts and it's broken and I'm sad and I'm angry and I'm lamenting and I'm praying God show up, but I trust him. I believe he will show up. I believe he will make everything right. And God says, you will live. If you have that sort of attitude, you will live. The righteous will live by their faith. Verse 5, moreover, wine is a traitor and an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death. He has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all his own, collects as his own all peoples. I mean, that was true of Assyria before Babylon. That was true of Babylon 
that was true of many of the various empires that came up, the Medes, the Persians, the Romans. It's been true of a lot of different people, isn't it? And they get so greedy, and there's just this greed and this violence and this amassing more and more and more, and guess what happens? It doesn't last. Then we go through five different woes. Verse 6, shall not all these take up their taunt against him? It's like the whole world is saying, when you act like this, when you act like these Babylonians act, woe to you. Watch out. Your fall is coming. And like the whole world is taunting them with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So when you, when you take what isn't yours and you go city to city and plunder them, you're going to get what's coming to you. Eventually, you will be plundered. What you have will be taken away from you. So, again, keeping all of this in context, God says, hey, I'm going to use Babylon to punish Judah for their sins. But don't think for a second that Babylon's getting off the hook. Don't think for a second that I'm not going to step in and I'm going to bring Babylon down. Don't think for a second that they're just going to continue in their evil ways. They will be brought down. All of these empires who do such things will be brought down. Verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. When you build your house on violence, it will be brought down. Woe to him. This is the third woe. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I just want you to just think, I was trying to think of this earlier, and I mean, maybe I just don't know enough world history, but I mean, try to think what, what, empire or nation or kingdom was ever established that wasn't established, at least to some degree, on blood and iniquity, enslaving or driving people out or slaughtering the people that were there before them, taking territory from someone else so that it belonged, and that's what Babylon was doing, that's what the Medes and Persians would do, that's what Greece would do, that's what Rome would do, that's what, you name it right? And God says, it looks like in your present circumstance, it looks like that this will continue to always be the way that it is. Just these horrible, horrible situations. Horrible people doing horrible, wicked things. But if you have the eyes of faith and you can see the big picture, then you can pronounce woe and say, when you act this way, don't be surprised when you're brought down. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Nakedness almost always has to do with shame, 
right, in an honor society, and you, you shame your neighbor. You make them drunk and you shame them. You, have, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as, the, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. And then he goes to the fifth woe, verse 18. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver and there's no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. He says, woe to you who build your cities on violence and oppression. Woe to you who build your kingdom by taking what doesn't belong to you. Woe to you who steal and murder and oppress and do violence. Woe to you who worship idols. You're you're praying to idols, lifeless, breathless things for your salvation and your security and your wealth. But guess what? They are powerless, but the Lord, Yahweh, is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. All of this in answer to Habakkuk's complaint and reaction, and all of this to ours, right? The answer to, well, why, why are bad things happen in the world? And, you know, well, it's, if you would just... If you'd just be a better person, good things would happen to you. Maybe not right now. If you just, if you just have more faith, then tomorrow everything would be okay. Maybe not. But things will eventually be okay. God will make all things right. And that's why on Sunday we talked about resurrection. That, that's why that has to be our hope. Right? That's why that has to be our hope. Because tomorrow, I mean, tomorrow some horrible world event might happen. I could be carried off as a slave to to live out the rest of my days in oppression and slavery and die in that situation. But guess what? God's going to raise me from the dead and right all wrongs. That's why this idea that the righteous will live by faith can only be true if there's a resurrection. And because of Jesus, we know that there is a resurrection and that the righteous will live by faith. That if you hold on to this truth that God is a deliverer and yes, the world is broken and yes, the world does need fixing and God says, I am doing something and I will do something. The Lord is in his holy temple. Now look at chapter 3. Now here is a psalm uh, of Habakkuk's that that really is just the perfect tying all of this up with a bow. So Habakkuk says, here's my complaint. God says, here's my response. Habakkuk says, I don't like that very much. God says, okay, well, here's a little bit more. And God says, "I I will make all things okay. And then Habakkuk answers with this prayer. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prayer, the prophet, according to Shigenoth, 
And that probably has to do with the musical notation of the psalm itself. Verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Now, think about everything that's been going on in the story so far. Habakkuk says, everything's bad, and God says, you'll have to wait, have faith, I will make everything right. And then, and then there's this psalm of God acting, like past tense, doing great and mighty things. So, is it past tense? Has God done might and great and delivering salvation things in the past? Yes. And will God do these things in the future? Yes. And our hope for the future is also rooted in the past. Because of what God has done in the past, we know what kind of God he is and we know what he will do in the future. And that was true for them. God, you brought us out of Egypt. You've delivered us over and over and over and over and over again from our enemies. But how much more so is it true for us who by faith see Jesus, who has shown up and has defeated sin and death, who has conquered the grave, but we still are waiting. And so our hope for the future is rooted and anchored in the past. We believe that God will act in the future based on what God has done in the past. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses and your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. Now, obviously, this is incredibly poetic type of apocalyptic language to say God has stepped in and delivered his people in the past, and you have to believe that God will step in and deliver his people in the future. And that there have been days of the Lord where God has shown up and he has brought mighty empires to their knees. But there is coming one great day where God will bring all of the wicked and the evil, the oppressors and the violent murderers and thieves to their knees and will deliver his people. You march through the earth in fury. You thresh the nations in anger You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed one. What's the Hebrew word for that? Messiah, right? For your Messiah. Now, again, almost all of the prophets have to deal with both judgment and salvation and deliverance and hope. 
But those two aren't separate ideas. They're two sides of the same coin. That when you're being oppressed and you're being hurt by evil people, you want God to show up and do something about them and, you, and in that deliver you and save you. And the promise of Habakkuk is that the righteous will live by their faith. You crush the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, listen, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. I will quietly wait for the day. I will quietly wait for the day. This theme over and over and over and over in Scripture. Wait upon the Lord. Don't take vengeance into your own hands. Don't give up hope. Don't stop waiting. Know for a fact that God will show up and God will make all things right. Wait quietly for the day. Verse 17, this is the best. Though the fig tree should not blossom. Here's Habakkuk's final conclusion of all of this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. For an agricultural people, what does that mean? Famine, Famine, right. There's nothing. And there be no herd in the stalls, no animals either. Everything's gone, everything's dead, everything's dried up, famine, Drought, nothing. Even if, Habakkuk says, even if that's the case, Lord, even if that's the case, even if there's no food to eat and we're starving and we have nothing, yet I will, what? Rejoice in my circumstances? Rejoice in my wealth? Rejoice in my food? Rejoice in my status? Rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. I will rejoice in the Lord. Isn't this Paul's conclusion too in Philippians chapter 4? As he's in prison, he says, listen, I've learned the secret to having an abundance or having nothing. I've learned that the secret to, to being in want and having a surplus Rejoice in the Lord. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. This is what it is to be those who live by faith. Do I want to live in a world where there is no blossom on the fig tree or fruit on the vine or there's no produce on the olive vine or branch? I don't want to live in that world, but Habakkuk says, even if that's the case, I will rejoice in you because I know, I know, I have confidence that you will make everything right. The righteous shall live by faith. We rejoice not in our circumstances. We rejoice in the Lord. That's why I get so concerned, church, when somebody's having a bad day and people say, well, here's what you need to do. Count your blessings. 
you still have your health. You still have your family. You still have a nice house. You still have a car. Guess what? All of those things could be gone. What we ought to be telling each other, rejoice in the Lord. You have Jesus, and he's all you need. Yes, it's nice to have a car, and it's nice to have a house, and it's nice to have a job, and it's nice to have family, but all of those things, ask Job, he'll tell you, all of those things could be gone overnight. Our confidence, our hope, our conviction, our joy has to be in the Lord. That's the secret to having plenty and being in want is we must believe and have confidence in and have faith in and rejoice in the Lord and not in our present circumstances. Because as Habakkuk will tell you, sometimes you look at the world and you say, this is broken and my whole life it's been this way and I want it to change. And God says, it will. Just have faith. Trust me. It may not be in your lifetime. It may not be in this in this millennium, but it is coming. There is a better world coming where righteousness dwells. Let's pray. Most Holy Father, Lord, I don't know what all is going on in all of our lives and all of the burdens that we're carrying, but I know, Father, that there are many burdens in this room. And I ask, Father, not only that you lighten those loads and make our present circumstances better, that you help us to have an easier time and that you help us to move from the valley that we're in and move out of that valley. But Father, I pray that in the meantime, you walk with us and that you strengthen us and that you help us to rejoice in you in spite of our present circumstances. Thank you, Father, for the confidence that we have in a better day that's coming. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.